lot of times I meet these lawyers and they're going to every seminar, reading every book, every little trick, but they're not getting in the ring. Theory will only get you so far. To become a top trial attorney, you have to roll up your sleeves and hone your skills in the courtroom. I think you just need reps. You need to get hit in the face. And there's really no substitute for that. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, the show where elite personal injury attorneys and leading edge marketers give you exclusive growth strategies for your firm. As CEO and lead trial attorney of the largest personal injury firm in San Diego, John Gomez knows how to take control in high stakes legal environments. Since 2005, Gomez Trial Attorneys has secured more than $750 million for their clients and a multitude of seven to nine figure wins. I caught up with the 11-time San Diego Outstanding Trial Lawyer to learn what it takes to become a top-performing trial lawyer. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first-page rankings with search engine optimization. John was back on the show in June 2020. To anyone that hasn't listened to that episode, you absolutely should. We covered a ton of ground surrounding his journey to success and the business side of Gomez Trial Attorneys. This time around, I want to focus on strategies for trial. I asked John how lawyers can get hands-on experience in the courtroom. There are less and less opportunities now to try cases. It's obviously very risky, very expensive. And so a person that is trying to break into the game, I would suggest either doing some criminal cases, plenty of trials over there all the time. But if you can't do that, then I would highly recommend just hitching on with someone that has more experience trying cases than you do. Maybe you have a case that that could be tried. I would not suggest doing that first one by yourself or the first five by yourself, or you see this lawyer that you admire and you might just say, might there be an opportunity for me to hang out with you and work with you in a trial? And a lot of people will come to me and say that I'll do it for nothing. I just want the experience. That's a great piece of advice. And I know there's tons of courses and books. Is it get the experience and then dive into the books for the extra little nuggets like is that where you start is the shadowing and the the mentorship if you can't try some of those cases yourself at the beginning there's so many book trial lawyers out there or seminar trial lawyers out there that have are, are theorists and haven't really you know gotten in the ring themselves you know And so I've always thought develop a a basic understanding of evidence and then get in there and do some trials, whether by yourself or shadowing someone. And then you can take it to the more refined or theoretical level. A lot of times I meet these lawyers and they're going to every seminar, reading every book, every little trick, but they're not getting in the ring. I think you just need reps. You need to get hit in the face. And there's really no substitute for that. That's a great piece of advice. So let's talk about the mental preparation. You know, what kind of mindset do you have to have to become this preeminent trial attorney? Because it is not a one year you're done. Yeah, I think it's really a mindset that can transcend trying cases. And that is always reexamining, always looking inward, always trying to get better. 
especially in this business, you're only as good as your last trial. Like my colleagues have a very short memory. And so, you know, I lose a trial, you know, that's all they want to talk about. Oh, you know, Gomez lost a trial. And they, they don't remember then I, I won the six before that. And, and that's fine. You know, I don't have any problem with that, but it's reality. The more important lesson is that in anything we do, uh, we always have to be re-examining, getting better, sharpening our tools. Like if you were doing the same SEO stuff you did like five years ago, you'd be getting blasted, you know, you'd be out of the market. Some travelers try the same case today they tried 20 years ago and that's no good. Yeah, you got to innovate. You got to mix it up and learn from your mistakes. So, you know, a case is going to go to court. You know, what what goes into it? Do you do mock trials? Do you, are you reviewing the defense, like what goes into that kind of the preparation before you even step in to kind of take on that battle? Before the case begins, we're going to have a very sort of robust discussion and examination of what story we want to tell. And so that will take place in phases. Initially, we're going to have an idea. How do we want to tell a story? What are our themes? What are our analogies? What are we going to emphasize? Most importantly, how are we going to deal with the problems in the case? You know, how are we going to make those problems our advantages? You really just have to think long and hard about how you want to frame the case and deliver the case and tell the story. You know, at that point, you know, we will engage some focus groups to help us refine that, you know, because a lot of times we become very tunnel vision and big, you know, we, we get so used to the case and we have our ideas about the case and we're really not human beings we're weirdos we're lawyers and so then you like show the case to some human beings and they come up with completely different you know stories or ideas or themes or analogies and so it's an uh evolving process you know we we have our ideas we do a focus group we get some new ideas we talk about it some more we do another focus group and so it's kind of an, this um, developmental process where you're just throwing stuff on the ground, starting over, throwing stuff on the ground, starting over until you get to a point where you're pretty comfortable going into trial that, you know, here's the story that's going to be most persuasive and here's the likely outcome. On that story side, have you found that since you've got a lot of reps, right? You've like, hey, I've took this story angle and it worked really well. And here's kind of a similar case. Is it is it those types of scenarios too that you're applying and refining the story? It's easier to do it the, the 60th time or the 70th time than, than the first time because you have context and experience. And so oftentimes the same general story is told time and time again. And so the same themes, you know, may be told or express time and time again. And, and so, yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. So are there any of a few analogies, like when you're going to explain something really complicated that you go to that, that really seems to resonate with the, with the jury? I, I just look for something that the ordinary person can relate to their life. We teach our kids, right, to look both ways before they cross the street, you know, because you always have to be, uh, you know, aware of and make sure that there's not going to be something bad that happens, you know, and likewise here, you know, this driver is driving a 30 ton cement truck 
and needs to look both ways before they enter an intersection. And, you know, who knows? I just made that up. But, you know, you always want to just relate it to something in the common juror's life. And if it's kind of a non-controversial thing that kind of governs how we live our lives or what we value, then it's easy for them to make that lead to the conduct of the defendant. During these mock trials, what goes into the, the jury selection and the story on that side? In the focus group part of things, in the mock jury part of things, we're trying to put together a mock jury that, that basically replicates what we expect to see in that jurisdiction. And so different places obviously have different types of people and different places have different you know, values. You know, trying a case in San Francisco is going to be a lot different than trying a case in the Deep South, for example. So if I was trying a case in the Deep South, I would want to go get mock jurors from the Deep South and do my focus groups in the Deep South, whatever the Deep South means. And within even the South, I would imagine folks in Tennessee or Mississippi think differently from folks in Southern Alabama, you know, so I would want to drill down, you know, to that level and be bouncing my ideas off people, you know, with those values and experiences. Understanding the jury allows lawyers to create compelling stories. I want to know how great trial attorneys explain that story to the jury. I think we need to understand that we are communicators. And so we need to communicate uh, purposefully and in purposeful ways. Sometimes tone matters. Sometimes pauses matter. Sometimes, you know, where you're standing matters. You can say, on the one hand, you know, Harry said X, but then James, and you move, you know, to another, and James, you know, just to allow the jury in their mind, it's very easy for them um, cognitively to separate those two concepts. And if you are moving to different spaces, and so you've got, you've got tone, you've got pause, you've got space, and then obviously, you know, we have uh, visuals usually that we're using to make the point while we're talking. When I'm doing interviews at our company and I, I interview and they're sitting in the same seat and they all just kind of blend together. Yeah, yeah, and right. I can kind of see the different people when you, when you change the tonality and your, your different placement of where they're at. Like it kind of helps with me to understand the different viewpoints. Yeah, it makes it, e it's just easier for the brain to process, you know? Right there. I, I think I said this on a previous podcast interview where you've had that statement where the guy says, I didn't say the neighbor killed his wife. I didn't say the neighbor killed his wife. So you're using uh -huh. the different words. And uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this book, Influence, uh, The Psychology of Persuasion uh, by Cialdani. And one of the principles that talks about reciprocity, right? So when you go to the, the car dealer, first thing they're doing right when you go in to look at a car is they're handing you water, they're trying to get you food, they're building up all this reciprocity so that, you know, you buy a car. 
Is there anything like that where you're trying to get the jury on your side that's actually above board? I'm sure there's probably constraints and things that block this, but what kind of things can you do to get that reciprocity? Yeah, we can't, we can't give them cookies or water or anything. Right. You know, popcorn, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but, but what we can do is respect their time. I think that's really important. You'll see a lot of lawyers are very disorganized and waste time. You know, I try to be very, very um, expeditious and organized and efficient in everything I do. My counsel desk will be very clean, uncluttered. Uh, I'm, I'm setting up before the witness gets in. I, I'm not fumbling through stuff. You know, I'm getting to the point and getting done. And, you know, that's one thing, obviously, that I think the jury appreciates is if you don't waste their time. I mean, that's a pretty basic thing, but a lot of lawyers do waste their time. And I think a more organized, efficient lawyer that doesn't waste their time, they appreciate that. And I I would extend that to, you know, get to the point and sit down and shut up. You know, less is more, especially, you know, with today's generation. I mean, we're not the Clarence Darrow generation. We're going to sit there and listen to some guy talk for five hours. You want to get in, get out and be done. Right. On that composure side that you're talking about, not cluttered, prepared, when the judge comes in and you've had those reps, can you tell it like they recognize you when they address you? Is that something the jury can pick up on? Like, like the judge knows this individual. So obviously this individual has experience and this isn't his first day, you know? Well, I think, I think like judges will attempt not to convey that like, Oh, I know Gomez always good. You know, being in front of you, Gomez, who are you, sir? No, they're not going to do that. You know, but I think what happens is over the course of the trial, you know, the same things that will annoy the jury will annoy the judge. And so the judge may express annoyance at the, at the counsel that's annoying them. And so then you're building up some goodwill probably with the jury through the judge and otherwise, or you're just bright, you know, like the other side's making dumb objections, you know, and the judge is overruling them. Like, I think that is lending some uh, trustworthiness or credibility to the good lawyer, hopefully me. Pre-trial preparation, managing witnesses, and building reciprocity with the judge and jury by respecting everyone's time is great advice. I wanted to know what makes a strong and memorable opening statement. I try to do uh, sort of talking threes, you know, all the time. I really like the rule of threes. I give original credit. Um, well, there, it could, there's a lot of people that believe in threes, but Mark Lanier in particular is very focused on the rule of three. When I give an opening, there will be three chapters to the story always. Within, you know, the chapters, there will be subparts that are threes. Two, there's always going to be an accompanying presentation. I like to use different media, so I'll, I'll be doing some drawing, I'm sure. Uh, I'll have the PowerPoint. You know, I may have some live stuff, usually like a model or whatever, something I can hold in my hand. You know, so I'm varying the, the, the modes of delivery, right? I'm talking in threes 
And, you know, I'm getting to the point. I don't want a long opening. You know, I'm hopeful I can get that thing done in like the 40 minute region, sometimes less. There's great trial lawyers that differ, but man, if I'm going over an hour, I feel like that's way, way too much. Yeah. You start to lose their attention. What about your expert witnesses? You know, you're, you're selecting your expert witnesses and, and is there preparation that goes into them and their delivery? Like how critical is it to get these expert witnesses that have a lot of reps as well, right? Because a lot of these are, are very expensive and, you know, especially on, on the med mal side, you know, what, what goes into that? Yeah, that's a hard thing because a lot of these expert witnesses feel like, you know, we can't really tell them how to do their job or they've testified a bunch and they don't want to be coached at all. Like they know better than us. Um, and sometimes that's fine. You know, you will have work with this expert before, you know, you know, what they're going to sound like and look like and what essentially what they're going to say. But if I've got a problem, like if I have an expert that, for example, you know, doesn't speak up or articulate, then I'm going to have a conversation with that expert in advance. And we're going to practice. I have a mock, I have my own courtroom. We'll bring them in and, and make them practice and get better, you know, because the body of knowledge and the facts that that expert are going to relate is such a small part of whether or not the jury's going to like them or believe them or where they went to school, whatever. A larger part is how they tell the story, you know, and, and like we talked about before, analogies, you know, I want to get them talking in analogies. I want to get them relating what they have to say to common everyday life and values. And so I would say, you know, don't be afraid of or intimidated by an expert witness. You know, it's your game, your show, and you're allowed to coach them up however you want. Absolutely. When you're telling this story, you're trying to get as much value to build up the case value as much as possible. But does the story kind of have a, a trajectory where it touches on each of these? Is that like one of the main components? Yeah, I mean, so at least in California, we have a variety of things that are compensable as non-economic damages, things like pain and suffering, loss of enjoyment of life, anxiety, grief, humiliation. And so, yes, you know, we would try to sort of address each of those types of things. But it's always going to be in stories. It's never going to be through the plaintiff. The plaintiff is not the person I want up there talking about how terrible their life is and how rough it is and how bad this hurts and that hurts. You know, I want other people that know that person. I want them telling the story of the loss and the damage. So our person looks more like a hero than a whiner. You never want to have a whiner. You want to have a hero. I'll have short witnesses that are kind of before and after witnesses that will just tell a story or two about how Chris is different now, you know, than he was before. I, I can't help it, but I relate everything to, to like marketing. And it makes me think of like a website where you're trying to convey different types of social proof. And 
where one individual says, you know, Hey, I'm this expert, let's just say trial attorney. And then you have a testimonial where it's someone else saying it, then it carries more weight. And then you have a case study and actual result, you know, that you go over and then you have, you know, an accredited big name association saying it, you know, it carries more weight. And that's kind of how that makes me feel. And I never even thought of that. I just saw actually yesterday, John, I was on TikTok. I was looking at the attorney category and the plaintiff was on the stand talking about how she couldn't move her arm. And then her phone rang and she like jerked back <laughs> and grabbed the phone. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be a bad day in court. You told your story, you're summarizing it. What goes into a f- fantastic closing argument? I think, you know, what I'm going to do is borrow a lot from the opening and particularly the presentation stuff and demonstrate to the jury that we proved what we said we were going to prove, you know, so we have some consistency, and then we have credibility. So a lot of what you'll see in my closing is the same stuff you saw in the opening, you know, and then on top of that, we're going to layer in a little bit more. You're going to see writing, like drawing and filling in the verdict form. We, we get verdict forms, right? And ultimately the job of the jury is to fill out the verdict forms. And ultimately, the point of the closing argument is to provide them guidance how to fill out the verdict form. And so, you know, I'm going to fill out the verdict form, you know, on an overhead projector. And then, you know, to provide them that guidance, I think, you know, seeing a person write it really opens up cognitive pathways for the jury, makes it easier for them to accept that and model that, you know, by each answer we're going to put like three reasons why you know we're always going to go back to that three um once i get into the damages part of things or the human suffering you know i'll tend to just step into the space a little more step away from the the template stuff and the presentation stuff and the writing stuff i just tend to let myself have a little more emotional sort of connection with the moment and the loss and the the jury. And so that's going to be a different mode of presentation as well. Have a more human connection with the jury. So you're varying modes, you're varying, you know, tools, you're varying tone, and hopefully all that stuff together will be an effective and persuasive uh, message. love how John walks the jury through the verdict card while tuning into the human element. And John has more than one insight to offer PI lawyers who want to become great trial attorneys. A lot of lawyers that try cases don't take the time or make the effort to know the rules. And, you know, I liken it to an NFL football game. And, you know, you see the coach on the sideline and, you know, they're throwing challenges and this and that. And it's, way more than that. You got to know the rules way more than that, because it's really a case in which you're watching the football game and you got to make the calls. If you don't call the penalty, then there's not going to be a penalty. Like imagine if like the referee's job was just to listen to you call penalties and see if you're right or not. 
right? And so I would say, holding, holding, number 72. And then the ref would be, okay, you're right, holding 72. Or the, the, the ref might say, no, no holding there. If you know the rules, you control what evidence comes in, you control what evidence is excluded. And if you know the rules, you have a tremendous advantage over a lawyer that doesn't know the rules. And so I would say, just pick up the evidence code, pick up the code of civil procedure, like really, really get to know those rules because there's a lot of little nuggets in there that a lot of lawyers never become aware of. That's a great piece of advice that makes me think of competence builds confidence too. And I love relating it to sports as well, because that's something that a lot of individuals can understand. And that's fantastic. Yeah, always, always sports. Yeah. And John, if we have a, a PI attorney that's listening, they got a great case, they're looking for co-counsel and want to run it by you, you know, what's the best way to get in touch with you? You know, what would you recommend to them? Yeah, you can text me at 619-850-2813 or email me, John, J-O-H-N, at thegomezfirm.com or just look me up, you know, on the website and you'll see it there. Trial lawyers that enjoy trying cases will always talk to you about your trial. And that's me. I've talked to a ton of people about trials and, and I always find it satisfying to help other trial lawyers get the, the good result that our clients deserve. John delivered a heap of actionable advice for building strong cases that win multi-figure verdicts. Before the trial, think long and hard about the story you want to tell. Consistency is king. Practice that story on a mock jury. Then bring that story to life in court using PowerPoints, models, witnesses, and movement. Finish strong by walking the jury to a logical conclusion where the verdict helps rectify the client's suffering. But I think the most important lesson here is to get in the ring as often as you can to improve your skills. I'd like to thank John Gomez from Gomez Trial Attorneys for sharing his story with us. And I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.